All right, so we are actually nearing the end of the semester, um, and we've gone over most of the topics that are contained within the Fundamentals of the Faith book. I think this is the second to last topic. Um, I'm not sure we're actually gonna cover the final topic within before the end of the semester, so we may cover that at some point in the summer. But I hope and trust that it's been a good time for you all discussing these things in your discipleship groups. And I found that even though that we call it fundamentals of the faith, it's hugely helpful and beneficial for me to go through these topics because, quite frankly, we all need reminders. And we can start to forget and start to stray even from the most foundational and fundamental aspects of Christian doctrine and Christian practice. Tonight's topic is no exception to that. Now, if you're a Christian here, and I assume that most of you are, at some point you probably have had to wrestle with whether or not you are truly saved. And why is that? Well, because in many ways, our Christian lives exist in sort of a tension, or there's a, a conflict. And it's a tension between what we are declared to be in Christ, new creations who are called to live a holy and righteous life, but also the reality that there are remnants of the old creation, the old person that we supposedly died to and supposedly we left behind. And for many, this has caused us to just kind of throw up our hands and wrongly assume, well, you just can't really know if you are saved. So you just have to do your best and just hope for the best. And how many times have you guys perhaps shared the gospel with someone and started off by asking them if they know what will happen to them when they die? And they share something along the lines of, well, no one can really know. And at first glance, this may seem very humble. They're not presuming to be saved and to know for sure and certainly it's true that some people who say that they're saved are not actually saved. And some people who actually are saved might actually struggle with doubt at times. But is that what God desires for us? To be unsure. To live in a state of self-doubt constantly. And yes, self-examination is important. And we have scriptures about that. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And we also know that not all who believe themselves to be Christians actually are. Matthew 7.21, what some people have called the scariest verse in the Bible, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And these things are certainly true. But we can know and even more than that, we are actually called to pursue that assurance. Later on, even in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John writes, I write these things to you who believe in my name, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. See, um, and hopefully, ABT, you got my slides um, so we can go to our context slide. 1 John was written to Christians who were at churches where certain people taught certain heresies. Now, these heresies were about how physical matter was evil, and therefore Christ had no physical body. 
And there were heresies that asserted that in order to be saved, you needed to achieve some sort of mystical higher knowledge above and beyond what the scriptures gave. So many of these false teachers ended up leaving the church. And those that remained were left wondering, well, how do I know who is truly in the fellowship of Christians and those who aren't? Because these false teachers and those who followed them, they, they seem to be Christians. They seem to be like the rest of us. So how do I know then that I am in the true fellowship of Christians? How do I know that I am not self-deceived? And to address those questions, the Apostle John, in his advanced age, he penned the letter of 1 John. And one of the words that he uses overwhelmingly frequently in this epistle, and I'm sure you guys noticed in your exegesis, is the word know. K-N-O-W. As in, by this we know that we are in him. No is actually used about 40 times in 1 John. And it was very clear that John was on a mission to give struggling young believers assurance that they were in Christ. And throughout the book, he gives several different tests so that his readers could know if they were believers. There's the doctrinal test. Do you believe the truth about Jesus Christ? There is the social test. Do you love one another? And then there's the test that we'll dig into tonight, the moral test. Do you obey Christ and live according to his commandments? So John wants his spiritual little children to be able to know with confidence that they are saved. So let's read our passage for today, 1 John 2, 1 through 6. So we'll move to our passage. This reads, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we start off where John starts off in this passage, where he directly tells us that one of the reasons that he's writing, I love it when authors do that because it makes it easy for us, right? And that's our first point. It's the purpose of John's writing, the purpose of John's writing. So in verse uh, 1b, or sorry, 1a, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Firstly, it's clear that John is writing to believers, right? That's his intention. Now, I know that doesn't mean that everyone who reads this letter is automatically a Christian, but God's in, uh, John's intended audience here, they are believers. He says, my little children. And then he outright tells us that he's writing so that we would not sin. So I'm going to make a huge interpretive leap here and make the bold statement that keeping from sin or not sinning is important. So John cares about whether we sin or not. God cares about whether we sin or not. And we should not sin. 
We should not want to sin. And that much should be obvious and that much should be apparent, right? But John does make it a point to mention a seemingly obvious truth. And why does he do that? Well, one of the offshoots of the heretical Gnostic teaching, it said that since the physical body and the spirit, they are separate, what you do in your physical body is no bearing on what happens with your spiritual reality. So go ahead, just sin all you want. And also in the previous verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So for those whose hearts are sinful and deceitful, there may be the temptation to take that and conclude that there's no point in fighting against sin. What we do in the body is not important. Because if we sin, we just confess to Christ and we are cleansed. And then we can just go on sinning because we're covered. You don't need to worry about repentance. Don't need to worry about killing sin or pursuing holiness because Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness anyways. It's unrealistic to go about your life without sinning, so why even bother? But John clarifies this for us here. Yes, Jesus cleanses us from our sin, but that doesn't mean that our sin doesn't matter. He's writing, and make no mistake, he's writing so that we would not sin. And this sentiment is shared by the Apostle Paul as well. In Romans 6, Paul asks rhetorically, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And later on in that chapter, he asks a similar question. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So the Apostle Paul cares whether we sin or not. The Apostle John cares whether we sin or not. And God cares about whether we sin or not. But lest we take this call to not sin and turn it into a legalistic thing, which we are also prone to do, and we start basing our standing before God to how well we perform in our own righteousness, John quickly brings us back to Christ, and he brings Christ into the picture. And what is this picture? It's actually the picture of a courtroom. So imagine you are standing before a holy judge. And your accuser stands on the other side of the room, listing out accurately and thoroughly all of your sins. And he must have done his research because he's not missing anything, even stuff that you thought no one knew about. You desperately search your thoughts, trying to come up with some argument, a time where you might have achieved some sliver of righteousness to present before the judge. But the evidence against you is too overwhelming. The accuser came with a full artillery against you, and he is relentlessly emptying it in a barrage of guilt. You have no defense. This isn't a court hearing. It's actually a massacre. And you know you are guilty. There's no arguing. The only question 
is how many more life sentences are going to get piled onto your punishment by the time your list of crimes and grievances is finished? How hot is the wrath of God going to get? How much more severe can it possibly get? But then someone stands up on your side of the room, an advocate, and not just any advocate. Who is it? It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So thank you, Jesus, right? Thank you, Jesus. So who is Jesus Christ for sinners? He's an advocate. And this takes us to our next point, the person of Christ for sinners. The person of Christ for sinners. So the first aspect of who Jesus Christ is for sinners is he is a righteous advocate before the Father. Verse 1b, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word here for advocate is parakletos. And the idea is of someone who is on your side or alongside you. Para, like parallel, alongside. And John often uses this same word to actually describe the Holy Spirit as someone who comes alongside you to comfort you and to help you. However, in this context, it's the idea of evoking this picture of a defense attorney, someone who is there to defend you and make a case for you before a judge in a legal hearing. Now, in the courtroom of God's divine justice, when our sin and the evil one would accuse us relentlessly, Jesus defends us. So Christ defends us. But how can he defend us when the accusations are actually true. He doesn't defend us based on our merit, because we have none. But this defense attorney, he defends us based on his merit. So how? How can he do that? He can do that because of who he is. The text tells us who he is. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he can do so because in the courtroom of God's divine justice, only the righteous can stand. Who is there who is righteous? And that should recall some verses for us. Namely, Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. So no one can stand and make a case for us except Jesus Christ, the righteous. Definite article, the, the only one, there is no other. But not only is Christ our defense attorney, but moving on to verse 2, the text says that this righteous advocate, he is also our propitiation. What is a propitiation? I'm sure you guys discussed this in your groups. So a propitiation is an appeasement of God's wrath. And specifically here, it speaks of Christ as a substitute that fully placates and satisfies the wrath of God that was intended for us. This means that not only does Christ stand alongside us as our advocate, pleading our case, arguing for us, no, this advocate, he actually stands not beside us, but in place of us as a sufficient propitiation for our sins. Now, he can't defend us based on our righteousness, 
but he can stand in our place and receive the wrath of a righteous God fully and completely, satisfying the sentence that we deserve. Now, how many defense attorneys do you know who would do that for you? Not very many. He is the one of whom Isaiah testified in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not just ours. The text says that he is the propitiation for the whole world. This one propitiation is sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God for your sin, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, we know that not every individual person in the whole world will be saved. This is not a statement of universal salvation. The propitiation of Christ is applied only to those who come to him by faith. But Christ's righteousness is sufficient for the redemption of all people. Now, not all people will be saved, but all people can be saved through Christ as their propitiator. Stated another way, anyone who comes to faith in Christ, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, light-skinned or dark-skinned, rich or poor, short or tall, regardless of background, social standing, nationality, in other words, the whole world, can be saved by faith in Christ. Now, to a Jewish audience, this idea of propitiation, it would be a very familiar one. It was one that the entire sacrificial system was based on. A priest would kill animals to atone for the sins of the people. And just these repeated, endless sacrifices, and which we actually learn from the book of Hebrews, accomplish no actual propitiation. Hebrews 7.27 tells us, he, speaking of Christ, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Christ's sacrifice is not like the other sacrifices. Christ's one-time sacrifice by itself is sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. And because of that, we are eternally secure. So this idea of Christ being our propitiation speaks of our eternal security. Eternal security, it's something that cannot be taken away. It cannot be changed or undone or invalidated. But many times Christians confuse eternal security with assurance of salvation. They're related, but they're actually not the same thing. So for our passage in this evening, we actually see both. So I want to take some time to distinguish the two. Eternal security, it has to do with the promise of God and the accomplished work of Christ. Christ secures your eternal security. Now, assurance of salvation is something different. Assurance of salvation does not determine your state before God Assurance of salvation is how you can know if you have eternal security. So I've likened this before to like having a $100 bill. I don't have one on me. A $100 bill, 
is actually a promissory note. You guys know what that is? Whether or not a $100 bill can legitimately pay for things is based entirely on a promise by the United States government, namely the U.S. Treasury, to honor it as legal tender. And if you read your money, it'll say something like that. That's like eternal security. Is the work of Christ sufficient? Is the promise of God certain and sure? Assurance of salvation is the proof that your $100 bill is the real thing. Does it have the watermark on it that shows that it's authentic? Does it have the, the 3D ribbon on it? Does the counterfeit pen show that the paper is the special paper that's used to make this bill? So the watermark, the 3D ribbon, the, the special paper, none of that actually pays for your dinner, but it shows that your money is real. And why do I make a, such a big point about this? Well, I'm spending time on this because Christians confuse this. And confusing the differences here actually can compromise the gospel. According to our passage here and also in other places in Scripture, what proves our salvation? Is it our profession of faith? Is it what we say? No, it's not. Our profession of faith is neither eternal security nor is it assurance of salvation. So what, according to Scripture, can demonstrate a genuine faith? Godly character, fruit, a changed life, love for one another, or as we'll discuss in a few moments, keeping his commandments. So yes, these things are all true, but these things, is that where our eternal security comes from? The fact that I keep his commandments. Is that why I'm saved? Absolutely not. Our works are like filthy rags. How well would it go over if you're at dinner and the waiter brings you the bill and you try to pay with a watermark, a 3D ribbon, and some special non-starchy paper? You'd get kicked out. And yes, these things are important and essential, in the expression and the practice of our faith, but they are not your advocate. They are not your propitiation for your sins. There is only one Savior, one salvation, one hope for sinners, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. His righteousness is your eternal security. So we're saved because he is righteous, not because we are. So our text doesn't say, but if anyone does sin, your obedience and your good behavior will convince the Father and your good fruit will be your righteousness. No, your obedience doesn't gain you any eternal security. But it says that someone outside of yourself with a righteousness that is not yours took your place before the wrath of God and continually defends you against the accuser. And that's an incredible truth. So that covers eternal security through the sufficient propitiation of a righteous Savior. But now we turn to the question of, but then how do we know? What gives us the assurance of salvation that Christ has accomplished for us? It's one thing for something to be real and true and secure, and it's a different thing for us to be assured of it in our lives. Now, one might be eternally secure, but you might still doubt on the other hand, someone might be supremely confident, but they're not eternally secure. 
So how do you know? And for that, we see how obedience is relevant. So we move on to verses three and four for our next point. This is the proof that you know Christ. The proof that you know Christ. Verse three, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So for everyone who tells you that you can't know for sure if you're saved or not, just turn to this verse and you've got your response. Yes, you can know. And this is precisely how. By this we know. So the kind of knowing described here is an experiential kind of knowing, not just an intellectual kind of knowing. And that's important because when it comes to your assurance, there is a major difference between understanding something from an intellectual standpoint versus understanding it from an experiential standpoint. It's the difference between someone who says, oh, I know how to cook this dish because I bookmarked a recipe from the internet. And then versus a seasoned chef who knows how to cook a dish because they've cooked it thousands of times. Which one would you rather eat? So by what can we have this deep experiential assurance of knowing Christ? It said later, if we keep his commandments. This is a conditional statement. If we keep his commandments, we can know that we have come to know him. So let's unpack that phrase, keep his commandments, a little bit. And this is another word that John likes to use. Keep. Sometimes it's translated observe. Like in Matthew 28, 20, we are to teach disciples to observe all that Christ has commanded. And yes, we're talking about obedience here. It's not less than that but it is actually deeper. The idea is of someone watching over something vigilantly. That's why it's sometimes translated observe, watching over something. Sometimes it's even translated as guarding something. So when John says, keep Christ's commandments, what he's communicating is a persistent watchfulness, not just a one-time occasional thing. So if we were, let's say, at a park, and I asked you to watch my kids at the playground while I use the restroom or something, you would want to keep an eye on them, right? So you would observe them, repeatedly looking at them just to ensure that if something starts to look dangerous or if someone suspicious starts to approach, you could step in right away, right? And here's the same idea. To keep his commandments, yes, it certainly means to obey his commandments, but there is this idea of continually watching and guarding the commandments of Christ in your heart. And this is something that can only come from a heart that actually cares about Christ's commandments, rather than seeking to simply meet some minimum threshold. In other words, if you're keeping his commandments, you're not living life on your own terms, under your own lordship, until someone catches you sinning. Someone who's seeking to keep his commandments is not simply asking, is this a sin? Can I do it? Because if it's not, I'm going to do it. And if it is, then I won't. This is someone who loves the commandments of Christ and desires to abound in keeping them. It's about the heart. Now, for you parents out there, you'll be familiar with the struggle of getting your children to eat something that they don't like 
Your children might not like broccoli or Brussels sprouts, but they might like french fries. Now, this is not a recommendation, but in our home at times we have resorted to asking Abby to eat her broccoli first, and then we will allow her to eat her french fries, to which she will respond, how many bites of broccoli? <laughs> Five bites? Ten bites? If the heart of man is like deep water, then the heart of a four-year-old is like the shallow end of a kiddie pool. You don't have to have a degree in biblical counseling to figure out what her heart wants and what it doesn't want. Because she's not asking how many bites because she loves broccoli and is hoping we'll say 50 bites. She's not, she is asking it because she doesn't like it. And she just wants to do the bare minimum to get what she really wants. Her attitude towards our rule reveals her heart towards broccoli. So is our attitude towards the commands of Christ similar? How many bites? How many times do I have to evangelize? How many verses do I have to read for my quiet time? How many days per week? Peter actually asked this exact question to Christ in Matthew 18, 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So what does Christ tell him? Not seven, but eight. No. He essentially tells him, you're not thinking about it in the right way. Do you understand that you should forgive, not to meet some requirement, but because you have experienced the immeasurable forgiveness of God and your gratitude abounds in a way that forgiving your brother is just a natural and direct expression of your identity as a forgiven man. Does our response to the commands of God reveal that we love Jesus and we want to obey him to the max? Does it reveal your identity as a transformed person? Or does it reveal that you don't love him and you would just rather do the minimum? 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are, you guys know it, harder not burdensome, right? So back to our passage. You can validate whether you know Christ, not by how many times you obey or you disobey, but by whether your life characterizes someone who cares and values Christ's commandments and guards over them in your heart and in your conduct. Someone who knows Christ will see their life move towards obedience. Someone who does not know Christ will see their life move away from obedience. Do you have a heart that obey, that where obedience flows out of it? Or a heart where disobedience flows out of it? Now our text goes on. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Our assurance is not based on our words or our profession. Stated another way, it's our walk, not our word that shows the authenticity of our profession. John goes so far as to call you a liar if you say you know him, but don't keep his commandments. And notice, it doesn't just say that you lie. It says that you are a liar. It's not an observation about what you do. It's a pronouncement about who you are. There's, this is not just a statement about the honesty of your words, but it is a statement about identity. If you say you're a Christian, 
if that is how you identify and you do not keep Christ's commandments, John tells you who you actually are, how you should identify. A Christian who lies? No, a liar. The truth is not in us. This is another phrase used by John. Same phrase to describe those who say they have no sin. And also, back in the Gospel of John, um, by Christ himself, he's speaking to um, some of the Jewish uh, believers, oh, I shouldn't say believers, the people who profess to believe in Jesus, but he calls them out. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So those are the words that Christ uses to describe his false followers. People who said that they were children of God, but in actuality were were children of someone else. Let's keep moving. In verse 5, John says that whoever keeps Christ's word, in him the love of God is truly perfected. And this takes us to our next point. It's the perfected love of God. The perfected love of God. Now, I would expect this to say that the truth is in him. Wouldn't that make sense? So fill in the blank. If you say that you know Christ and do not keep his commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. But whoever keeps his word, blank. I would say whoever keeps his word is a truth teller and he knows Christ because that's what completes that logical statement, right? That was, that's what resolves that. But John does not say that. What does John say? And what does it tell us about obedience? Instead of say, instead he says, in him the love of God, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So did John lose his train of thought? You know the answer to that, no. This tells us that for John, knowing Christ, keeping his commandments, and the love of God, these are all intertwined. In English, when we use the word perfected, we sometimes think of something that is um, without blemish or spotless. But the idea of perfected here is referring to the idea of bringing something to completion or bringing something to maturity. The love of God is completed in us because it is manifested or expressed in our action of obeying the commands of Christ. By saying the love of God is perfected, John is not saying that our love is without blemish or the best that it can possibly be without any improvement. It is referring to a mature love that is doing what love is supposed to do. If your love for God has truly taken root in your heart, it will grow and it will reach maturity by bearing fruit. That fruit is expressed in how you obey Christ's commandments. If you claim to have the love of God, but there is no outworking or expression of that in your life, then it has not reached maturity or completion. It has not been perfected. For example, if you plant an apple seed in the ground, then you would say that that seed is completed or it has finished what it was meant for when, when it produces a sprout or when it has some branches and some leaves. No, you keep on going. It's when it bears the fruit that it's supposed to bear, when it 
gives you apples. If we were to use that term here, the seed is perfected when it produces apples. And the love of God is perfected when the seed of that love in our hearts produces the fruit of obedience to Christ and his commands. Our obedience validates that our love for God is real, just like apples on a tree would validate that you had apple seeds in the soil. And one of the clearest ways that this is practically lived out is if we obey Christ's command to love one another. Uh, John 13.34, lots of cross-references from John today. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And also in 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. But we are not just free to go about this in any way that we please. The world would claim that it is acting in love, even as it celebrates evil. But there is an example and a standard for how we ought to be living and what obedience looks like. And that example is found in Christ himself. And that will be our last point for this evening. It's the pattern of walking like Christ. The pattern of walking like Christ. Starting in verse 5b. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Another way to describe a true believer is someone who abides in Christ. This is the same word and the same concept that's described in John 15. When Christ calls his disciples to abide in him the way that branches abide in a vine. Those who abide in Christ remain in Christ. They are there permanently. They are not taken away and thrown away into the fire because they bear the fruit of Christ-like obedience. You don't throw away branches that bear fruit. You only throw away and burn the ones that don't. There's an expectation that those who are abiding in Christ would walk in the same way that Christ walked. If we're truly keeping Christ's commandments, keeping his word, we can't substitute a different man-made morality or tradition. That's what the Pharisees did, and that's what Christ was teaching against in the Sermon on the Mount. So when Christ says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is giving us the distinction between the morality of men and the morality of his kingdom. So the question for us to consider, if we are to walk in the same way that Christ walked, then how did Christ walk? Well, that could be a sermon series all unto itself. But for our purposes tonight, um, I just thought we could close by turning to a few scriptures that describe how Christ walked in obedience so that we could look to these as our example. John 6, 38. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. Christ obeyed the Father. That's the model that we have for us. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That was Christ's priority. What is our priority? Is it to do the things that please us or the things that please him? 
John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus considered obedience to his Father as his food, as his sustenance. Or sometimes, in our flesh, we see it as the opposite, something that takes that away from us. It's away our sustenance. But Christ didn't see it that way. A little bit of a longer passage in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, we also have the example of Christ. Do nothing from selfish selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the pattern of Christ is a pattern of loving obedience. And there's a humility that Christ exemplified for us as well, a laying aside of his rights so that he could serve us in obedience to the Father. How willing are we to lay aside our rights so that we can serve one another and obey our God? Christ's death was the ultimate case of a loving and humble obedience. And lastly, John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So our obedience to Christ involves loving one another. John makes it clear that if we are in fellowship with Christ, we are also in fellowship with his people. And the way that plays out is having a Christ-like love for Christ's people. So that's the challenge and the exhortation I want to leave us with tonight. There are plenty more examples that we could turn to, but just for the sake of time, we see Christ's example of obedience, of humility, and of loving one another. So let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful, Lord, that we can know if we are in you. And Father, I just pray for everyone here, if they truly have salvation, if they truly know you, that you would give them that assurance, that assurance that only comes from our lives that bear the fruits of repentance and obedience and of love for you and love for one another. I just pray that you encourage those folks. But I also pray for anyone here, as the scriptures command us to do as well, that we would examine ourselves, Lord, not to introduce doubt where there doesn't need to be, but to understand ourselves in light of what the scriptures say versus what we ourselves say. So I just pray that you would give us um, just a, a mind that can understand your word, open our eyes and give us ears to hear that we may comprehend and understand what your word has to say. And I just pray that as we go forth from here, that we will really strive to love one another and by doing, demonstrate that we know you and the, your love is perfected in us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.